This is Bad Dog Books. Welcome to the BDB podcast for February 2007. I'm your host, Alex Vance, speaking to you from a gilded tower which overlooks the vast literary empire that is Bad Dog Books. BDB produces Fang, the little black book of furry fiction, which is a periodic anthology of furry literature in sleek, black, pocket-sized format, as well as a line of novels under the Fang Presents banner. BDB also offers its publishing expertise to writers with a story to tell and the desire to get people to read it. This episode features news about a new printing deal, the new pocket edition of Fang Volume 2, the premiere of the first Fang Presents novel, the submissions theme for Fang Volume 5, and features the first part of the audiobook presentation of The Walking Mountain by Ben Goodrich. Visit BadDogBooks.com for more information. On with the show. When things go quiet at Bad Dog Books, it can mean three things. One, we're having a party and you're not invited. This doesn't happen nearly as often as we'd like it to, alas. Two, we're working very hard on something. This happens all the time. We wish we could have more parties, but between schmoozing, editing, wheeling and dealing, we just don't have a whole lot of time to spend just drinking. Usually we end up drinking while working, but there's a third option too. That's when we're working very, very, very hard on things. So hard, in fact, that often we can't even drink. Can you imagine? Well, you don't have to. This is that eventuality. And we of Bad Dog Books, which include the hard-working yet comically underpaid Ben Goodrich and the money-grubbing, egomaniacal and always humble Alex Vance, are proud to reveal to you all the sweet, golden-hued fruits of our labours. After months of negotiating and wrangling, we can finally announce that Fang will be available from Fur Nation starting in late February. This will be the pocket edition of Fang, compact and sleek as it always was intended to be, and thanks to Fur Nation's cutting-edge equipment, we'll be able to change the price of the Fang books back to their original level. In order to facilitate resale and ensure Fang's financial future, Fang Volume 1 was re-released in 2006 in pocket format at a staggering 29.99. While we at Bad Dog Books were more than a little perplexed at the complete absence of complaint, one avid reader gave us the heartwarming confirmation that it's worth paying for, we still felt it was too much to lay down for a book, even one of this quality. We are proud to announce that the Fang line henceforth will be sold for $19.99 per copy. I've made no secret of the fact that Bitch Boy by Badger was my favorite story in Fang Volume 1. In fact, I actually contacted the author for permission to use the story in the volume. This is contrary to Fang's basic principles, but well, I was the editor. The boss applesauce. I could do whatever I damn well pleased. Anyway, Badger, also known as André Blaireau, had a few tricks up his sleeve, it turned out. Having long sleeves, Monsieur Blaireau's tricks were far too big to fit in any volume of Fang, so why kick other talented authors off the scarce Fang pages when BDB was already gearing up to launch a line of novels by selected Fang authors? Bad Dog Books is proud to present Everybody Loves Luther, the story of the Badger Adrian Drew, professor at Whiskey University, and the young Dalmatian Luther Coachman who breaks him out of his mourning for his deceased lover. Throw in a frisky young couple consisting of the tough queer Jesse Krolik and his easy-going partner Chip Rockwell, and the various dramas life can throw at young and old alike, and Everybody Loves Luther is a worthy opening to the Fang Presents line of novels. Gorgeous cover art provided by the spectacular painting talent of Grimal, which you can check out at the gallery at baddogbooks.com. Everybody Loves Luther is available for 19.99. Okay, time for a bit of reading. I mentioned at the start that we'd be re-releasing Fang Volume 2, which contains horror and a bit of erotica. 
It was originally released at Halloween 2005, and it was through this volume that I was introduced to Ben Goodrich, who'd later joined the BDB team. Since then, he's continued to write stories for the series he started in Fang Volume 2, one of which I just couldn't resist adding in the re-release. I know, I know, it's a jip for anyone who already bought the book, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read you the damn story. In pieces, obviously. I want to keep your attention, but you're going to get the entire thing, and that's a hell of a yarn, for free. Ready? Bad Dog Books presents The Walking Mountain by Ben Goodrich. First published in the pocket edition of Fang, Volume 2, in 2006. Read for you by Alex Vance. It was in the Brigham on Chapley region of England that my old flatmate Benchley settled following our graduation from Cambridge. We were thick as thieves in our Denbridge College of Magic days, occasionally exceptional students with troublesome streaks that led us to the sort of high-spiritedness found only among college students with fine minds and few distractions. It was, for instance, my idea to change the water in the River Cam to chocolate pudding while the punting team was in practice. But since I was only a theorist, and he was the practical wizard, I was the one tasked to research the spell while his job was to engineer it. The spell was only to affect a quarter mile of the river, to have no deleterious effects on the plant and animal life in it, and to reverse itself within fifteen seconds. I must here assure the reader that despite the effect that the spell did have, no permanent or lasting damage was done to either the river cam or the punting team. I also plead with the reader's indulgence that the shortcomings in the spell were not as a result of any errata on my own researches, as before and after the disaster, I had thoroughly checked every note and page I had studied to design the spell. No, it is with Benchley that the unfortunate debacle must rest. If one wishes to examine the accounts of that day in September of 1889, one need only regard the pertinent issue of the London Times. Suffice it to say on my part that it resulted in two naked students standing sheepishly before the Dean of Magical Studies, soaked from stem to stern in chocolate pudding while an outraged punting coach, who suffered no such indignity, demanded our immediate and summary expulsion. On that occasion, if on no other, as we were sternly warned that day, the Dean showed kindness and more than a little good grace and humour in demanding of us only that we paid for the damage done. No small sum, but I for my part could well afford it. Letters were also posted immediately to our parents, which to any Cambridge student caught in the act of hijinks is a fate far worse than death, but which indignity I could also bear, considering what might have been the gruesome outcome. Benchley was of no such means, and was nearly fainting at the prospect of coming up with such a princely sum. He took out a massive loan at a usurious interest rate from a local savings establishment, and so spent the remainder of his university days swaddled in debts that precluded his ever paying for the beer again, and taught him the true meaning of parsimony. There also circulated a poster for a number of years created by an enterprising photographer who happened to be on the site that faithful day, photographing the punting team. To date, I occasionally see the photograph, which is a fine portrait of Benchley and myself, naked, stricken, and humiliated, both clearly recognisable despite being awash in chocolate pudding, crawling out of the river cam, and the horrific results of our arrogance. I suspected, and history later bore me out, that the college gave quiet and nodding approval to the continued circulation of the photograph, as a warning to later pupils who might find their imagination for pranks outstripping their skills at performing them. Benchley came into quite a lot of money just before his university career finished, enough to settle his remaining debts and purchase land outside of Northampton, 
where he maintained a thriving practice in spell analysis and diagnosis when he wasn't spending five months of the year teaching at the very same college where any mention of chocolate pudding gave him the willies. At the time of this narrative, he had surpassed comfort and was becoming quite well off indeed. I wouldn't like to say that we fell entirely out of touch following our Cambridge days, as we carried on a lively correspondence that hearkened palmier days, as well as described our current status as successful men of business and service. However, I had not seen him for at least five years when the telegram arrived on a sunny summer day. It was actually my business associate's assistant who signed for the telegram. Billy had made several noble attempts to teach him to write, and Stocky had mastered his name at least. However, it is through incantation that creatures such as Stocky are conjured, and through writing that the conjurations are recorded. Thus, teaching Stocky had had curious effects upon the household, such as summoning giant yet harmless spiders that draped everything in webs as if someone planned to paint. A first-form reading primer served to go well until we discovered that his repetition of its short and simple lines were etching the same words in a fancy script in the attic beams. Since the wards are stronger on the laboratory in the basement, I suggested to Billy that the lessons continue there, only to have an incantation cleaved from the opening lines of an Oscar Wilde's children's book submerge the chamber to a depth of four feet and unleash a savage, bloodthirsty octopus into the waters, which fought my associate for the better part of two and a half hours. After that, Billy wisely chose to avoid further education until some means could be derived to prevent the reading of innocent stories from becoming the conjurations of horrible monsters. It wasn't so much the fact that the last one had tried to drown him and eat him as the fact that each of these events subtracted from the sum total of Stocky's life, which had already promised to be short. Stocky's energy was limited, and each spell, especially the sophisticated ones, cost him some of that energy. Heeding the warnings and the very real threat of disaster if he spoke aloud any words from any document longer than a haberdashery sign, Stocky handed the telegram to me, unopened. I thanked him politely and examined the contents. Must come to Brigham immediately. Stop. Greater Arcana destroying village. Stop. Yours, Benchley. I blinked a lot at the telegram, primarily because it made no sense whatsoever. There was not a chance that a greater arcana could have arrived the previous night. The day completely lacked signs and portents. The sky was the exact opposite of black and morbid. The ground steadfastly refused to tremble, and were there any rains of goat blood anywhere in the meteorological forecast, I certainly would have read of them. What's more, had a greater arcana arrived on this world, Billy would have been out the door like a shot either racing in its direction under its fiendish hypnotic mesmerism to join its hellish army of darkness or fleeing the country as fast as his shaggy legs could carry him so as not to be caught up in the maelstrom. In this regard, he was in fact an excellent coal mine canary as any magical wave that size anywhere in the world would have set him off like an alarm clock. I decided to put this theory to the test. Billy, I called. He came in from where he was burying something in the garden. I didn't like to think what, since we'd had more than one neighbour over demanding to know what became of his cat, and I was only 95% certain that my partner wasn't keeping his prowling and hunting skills sharp in this urban environment by utilising the available prey. His face was a mask of dirt and sweat. He had one of my finer linen tablecloths tied around his waist as a breech clout. You bellowed! I showed him the telegram. He held it close to his face and his eyes swept over it. Then he looked down at me. What's this? Telegram, I said. I can see that, boss, he said, patiently, sitting heavily in a chair. 
What do you want me to say about it? Well, is it possible that there's a greater arcana marauding about the farm country north of London? He stared at me for a moment, obviously gauging whether I was serious. Then he burst out laughing. Oh, wow, boss, he said. You had me going for a moment. I mean, your face is so perfectly serious. I am perfectly serious. You'll notice that I'm not laughing. I don't laugh when I'm being perfectly serious. That very much helps to define how serious I'm perfectly being. Oh, come on, boss. A greater arcana in Brigham. And the entire magical community of London not in total chaos. Your buddy Benchley's having you on. Benchley swore off cheap pranks some time ago, I said, taking the telegram back. Oh, right, said Billy. The pudding. It was inevitable that Billy know about the pudding, given his occasional Cambridge associations. Then, whether there's a greater arcana in Brigham or not, your friend Benchley is convinced that there is. And that's enough reason for investigation, I said. Come, Billy, let's get to the bottom of this. The drive to Cambridge was pleasant, along some nice country roads, and every rolling mile served to further convince me that Benchley was delusional. Nothing about the landscape or the day indicated the presence of Greater Arcana. We had brought Stocky along, because having once been a Greater Arcana himself, he made an even better canary than Billy. We had also tried, prior to departure, to reach Benchley on the telephone, as I was certain that he had one, but no one answered the ring. We were at the top of a rise when Billy pointed to a distant shadow. What do you make of that, boss? It was an unusual structure, he pointed out. Among other things, it was huge, perhaps five hundred feet tall, perhaps taller. It would have dwarfed the Tower of London. Its sheer size was alarming enough, but for its surreal appearance. It was little more than a large pod-shaped dwelling perched atop three massive iron legs. Some sort of heavy rope, like a boat cable, snaked down from the centre and dangled loosely between its metal knees. Alarming as the sight of the object was, it grew more alarming when it took a step. It rocked back on two of its legs and lifted a third, reaching forward until it overbalanced on it and dropped heavily onto it. There was a moment for the sound to travel, and then a short, thunderous boom. I imagined the automobile trembling. It's metal! I said. Mechanical, self-locomotive, certainly hydraulic. It's a machine. Could that be what your friend mistook for a greater arcana? I don't see how, even at this distance, I said. Still, it travels slowly, and there's little more than farmlands and forests in that direction. We may have time for further investigation before we approach it. Unless you'd rather... Um, given the choice, I choose discretion, said Billy. Let me join you on your reconnaissance. Very well. I said, dropping the automobile back into gear. We continued down the lane towards the village. The village, as it happened, didn't look very destroyed. Brigham is a pleasant little country village with shops, a pub, a cluster of houses surrounding a central square and a mile of farmland in every direction. The soft boom of the metal monster's footsteps drifted over the fields every fifteen or twenty minutes, and so long as the beast didn't provide an immediate menace, I chose to head down to the pub and ask if the locals had any intelligence concerning it. The village square was bustling and active at this time of day, as farmers brought their stock in to trade for coin or services. We weren't here on market day, which was a shame, as I suddenly craved a bag of fresh vegetables to take with me back to London. Billy turned few heads, as the sight of a werewolf, even one in a waistcoat and trousers, wasn't entirely unexpected in this community. A young man examined my automobile with envy, and I was pleased to provide him with its particulars and price tag. He indicated that he might well look up its manufacturer. 
Stocky was a curious monster in this region, both in the sense that few had seen a werewolf quite like him, and in the sense that he poked his oily black muzzle into all things. When he helped himself to a quail from a brace hanging outdoors of a butcher's shop, thus forcing me to surrender a few quid to the shopkeeper, who was quite understanding about it, all things equal, I felt that I should cease absorbing the local colour and hail forth to the pub. Innkeeper, I said, taking a seat, stout for myself and my friends, a pint for me, a pint for Stocky, a gallon for Billy here. Certainly, sir, said the barkeep, filling the draughts and putting them on the table. One and sixpence. Keep the change, I said. I'm an investigator, working for Mr. Benchley of Hawkling Manor. Ah, you must be Lord Banyan. I imagine you'll be wondering about the walking water tower over there. Indeed, sir, I said, pleased to find a helpful spirit. My associate was less than edifying. Scared white, you mean, sir, the barkeep chuckled. He was in the pub when it landed, just about where his trousers when it reared up over the forest. A couple of his mates took him home after he sent you that message. Yet you're not frightened. Well, it's not hurting nothing but the lordship's trees, really, except it put one hell of a dent in Farmer Morgan's pea patch. Hasn't moved but two miles since it showed up. Benchley indicated that it was destroying Brigham. With all due respect, your lordship, Mr. Benchley wasn't thinking terribly clearly when his mates took him out of here. Had some kind of breakdown in the head. He tapped his forehead. Of course, he was a bit in his cups. High-spiritedness, you know, tends to the bottle when he's feeling victorious about Summit. Billy finished his beer in two gulps and let out a belch that rattled the glasses. As if in response, another boom rolled through the pub and the glasses rattled again. No one noticed. Billy shook down and the barkeep pulled him another draught. Machine did step on one of Mr. Benchley's guest houses earlier this morning, he said. For a moment it was straddling the town like it was just a stream. Took no notice of us, though. Just kept walking. I must admit, your lordship, I was quite in awe of it standing there. I finished my stout and reached for another pound for Billy's gallon mug. On the house, your lordship, said the barkeep. Any friend of Benchley's is like to be a friend of the whole village. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. What do you reckon the thing is, though, your lordship? Don't look like it was made in England. Could it be some French invention? I don't know, I said, as Billy finished his refill. I do know one thing. It isn't magic. Thanks for your hospitality, sir. Any time, your lordship, any time. So Benchley finishes a spell, I said, a big spell, one he's been working on for some time. He's in the pub, celebrating. Translation, getting rot stinking drunk, said Billy. He belched again, more subtly than last time. Can't blame him, that's some good stout. And he gets drunk enough so that when that three-footed monstrosity plummets out of the sky, he associates it with a spell, I said. Something that big must be an accidentally conjured greater arcana. Benchley holds it together long enough to send off the telegram, or his friends send it for him, and then repairs to his stately manner to... What? Reverse the spell? I grimaced. Benchley intoxicated and waving his wand around was more likely to turn him into a cockroach than accomplish anything useful. Benchley intoxicated, insane, and waving his hand around led me to half expect that the manor would be a smouldering crater. Intoxication was built-in proof against powerful spells, since such things required a clarity of mind that could be found in the bottle of no bottle. But panic has a sobering effect. The manor, to my relief, was no crater. It was, however, deserted. 
It lies at the end of a long dirt road accessible just outside the village of Brigham, with no twists, no turns, and only a single gate held shut by a length of fraying twine. The road was in reasonable shape, and the car performed adequately. Benchley keeps no livestock, nor does he plough the fields, but lets other farmers do as they please with the property as so long as they don't approach too close to the house or molest the land, as his isolation serves his business quite well. I pulled up to the main house. The three of us disembarked from the automobile, and I gave the bell a hearty pull. Nothing answered the ring, which echoed deep within the bowels of the house. Benchley keeps no servants, his most recent butler having resigned after turning himself permanently purple after attempting to clean an experiment that Benchley had left percolating in a disused pantry, despite dire warnings of keep-out and unsafe all over the door, and Benchley had evidently not yet engaged the services of another. I chose instead to simply push open the door, and we all let ourselves into his home. Benchley! I called. When I heard no response, I turned to Stocky. Can you smell him? Everywhere, said Stocky. He is in the house, though. His scent on the stoop is fainter than his scent indoors. I thought for a moment about where Benchley might be, not wanting to do a room-by-room -room search. Were I Benchley, convinced that an unimaginable horror was at large in the English countryside, I would want to be somewhere safe and hidden, and hope the armies of darkness wouldn't find me. Failing that, I would want some comfort in my final moments, as the world was devoured. Wine cellar, I said. Billy grinned widely. I remembered the location of his wine cellar with cheer. Lighting a lantern, I went to the door and popped the latch and swung it open. Benchley, I called. Though I received no answer, I headed downstairs into darkness. My own wine cellar has long since been converted for the use of magical experimentation, but for a single rack containing a few common vintages. Benchley, with larger facilities in a more isolated setting, felt safer doing his experiments elsewhere, and his wine cellar was still dedicated to the storage of wine. Billy sniffed as he reached the bottom of the stairs. Over here, he said, heading around a corner. Curled up under a table, sound asleep, was Benchley. He clutched a bottle of Bordeaux as if it were a life buoy, and he was lost at sea. He was dirty, trembling, and terrified. He had rent his clothes asunder. Benchley, old chap, I said, crouching down. He smells bad, said Stocky. I think he made water. He did indeed, I commented. Come along, Benchley. Come on out from under there. Throughout this exchange, Benchley failed to register our presence. I should hope that I never find myself in a situation so terrifying that I am too frightened to drink. Finding him passed out and surrounded by empty bottles might have been better, if not as healthy. He became conscious of the proximity of his old schoolmate, and that schoolmate's werewolf companion, and a silly grin started to wander across his features. It was interrupted in its sojourn by the sight of Stocky, who gave him nothing more than his friendly, vacant smile and childlike optimism. Benchley's pupils contracted to the size of pinpoints, he yelped, and he fainted again. Oh dear, I said. Come on, let's get him somewhere safe. Okay, welcome back, and stay tuned, because there will be more later. Now, I want to talk to you about Furry Weekend Atlanta. At FWA, our friends at Furnation will be stocking a lot of sleek black covers on their table. Fang Volume 1, 2, and Everybody Loves Luther, all for the marvelously affordable 1999, will be available in decent quantities, so hopefully it won't sell out as it's done at previous cons. Of course, I say hopefully. 
If you're planning to attend and you're considering picking up a copy, do hop by the Furnation Table early and beat the crowd, eh? Oh, and while you're at it, if you do pick up a copy, take some pictures. If you go to baddogbooks.com and you can check out the gallery there, you'll see that a couple of uh, readers have already taken to... Uh, taking creative snapshots of their fangs in various positions in their homes and their clothes, near various landmarks, various people. If you want to join in, hop on the bandwagon, take a few snapshots, send them over to baddogbooks at gmail.com. Uh, let me know who you are, so I know who to credit the picture to. Let me know who's in the picture, if it's anyone relevant, and where it was taken, and we'll go in the gallery. Now, okay. The poor, hard-working writers among you have been listening to all this promotional claptrap, wondering when we'd get to the really important stuff. I mean, who cares about books that you can't write stories for? Who cares if anyone buys them or not when you've already been paid? Think about the future, dude! For those selfish individuals, here's the good news. The future is now, and it's called Fang Volume 5. Originally, Fang's volumes centered around a particular genre, contemporary gay erotica for volume 1, horror for volume 2, with a bit of erotica thrown in, yeah, sure. Uh, erotica fantasy for volume 3, and then Ben Goodrich took over, and Fang volume 4 was PG-13, and focused around science fiction. Now, partly this scheme was a sneaky trick to ensure sufficient submissions. I thought it would be best to choose a nice, broad, catch-all genre, because surely some writers would have a story or two lying around that fit the bill. Of course, that didn't turn out to be at all necessary. Not in the bloody slightest. We were swamped in submissions, and so Ben, who has a pair of cojones the size of melons, has braved my ego, which is the size of a small planet, and smashed my preconceptions, and decided to go with something new. It's time to take risks with Fang, and it's time to make authors work harder, lazy buggers that they are. Fang Volume 5 will not have a genre, it will have a theme. You got it? A theme. And Fang Volume 5's theme will be... Games. That's it. Take it as far as you want, or as close to the mark as you can. If you've written for Fang before, you know that we value good writing even more than we value our own rules. So go nuts, fly with it. Just remember that your writing has to be really insanely good to convince us to overlook obvious oversights. That's why we've set up a new advice section at www.baddogbooks.com. Read it and stack your chances of making the grade. Submissions will be accepted from February 14th to April 14th. As always, submissions instructions are available on the BDB website. So you'd better get cracking. Now... Let's see where we left off Billy and Banyan and Benchley and Stocky and everybody else in this wonderful tale. Here comes part two of The Walking Mountain by Ben Goodrich. We put Benchley on a fainting couch in his parlour. Billy brought up a full cask with him. The two gallons of stout in his belly could in no sense begin to intoxicate him, so he had brought reinforcements. I'm uh, going to get started, he said, popping the bung and lifting the cask over his head. He drank at the barrel as if it was no more than a beer mug. Wine gurgled down over his neck and chest. When he stopped to take a breath, he clutched the barrel to his belly. Is he going to be mad at me for this? I doubt it, I said. That's a table wine, last year's. If you'd gotten into the ten-year-old reds, he'd have killed you. Billy drank again, belly bulging. The sheer quantity of alcohol it took to get him even marginally drunk was shocking. Ordinary beer was like skim milk to him. "'Found these in the kitchen,' said Stocky, holding up four bottles of scotch. 
Billy put down the half-empty barrel. Perfect, he said. Pour him in. How do you feel? I said. Not ready yet. Billy helped Stocky pour the fifths into the barrel, then hoisted it again. This time he closed his eyes tight and drank it as fast as he could. I felt sure the poor deer would explode, especially with his grains mixed like that. Wine washed over him. He spread his legs to stabilize his stance. With the barrel not holding but a few drops, he let it go. It hit the floor and split. Billy was drenched. He threw his mane out of red, bloodshot eyes. His tongue lolled. Let's do it now, he said. This is as far as I'm going to get on this guy's cellar. He licked his chops and knelt next to Benchley, pressing his wet paws against Benchley's cheeks. He opened Benchley's mouth a little, whispering a short chant. Then he inhaled. Benchley's drunkenness, the degree to which he had poisoned himself, flowed out of his body and into Billy's. This was by no means the first time I had seen him perform such a spell, but Benchley was profoundly drunk, and I could see that Billy had never experienced such intoxication. As Benchley blinked and rubbed his eyes, Billy sank weakly to the floor, hiccuped, and giggled. "'My goodness!' said Benchley. "'Benyon! Benyon, you came!' He leaped from the couch, flung his arms around me, and nearly knocked me over. "'What's been happening? What horrors are resounding through the landscape? Is there news from London?' I disengaged him gently. Well, thus far, the only horror on the landscape is my associate, too drunk to stand. After the fireball last night, said Benchley, I remember so little. What's happened? Are the thousand years of darkness begun? Are they over? Have you come to help me rediscover the world? He wasn't hysterical, but I was on the verge of slapping him anyway. Benchley, will you calm yourself for a moment? Billy cast a transference spell to sober you up, that's all. The monstrosity that fell out of the sky is a mostly harmless tower that's been wandering aimlessly about the forest since it landed. There is no immediate danger. The world continues to spin. That's it. Benchley looked horribly relieved. For a moment, I thought he would faint again. Behind him, on the carpet, Billy belched. Petit four, he cried out, though for what reason I didn't know. Will he be all right? said Benchley. He'll be fine in half an hour, I said. At which point you owe him your gratitude and apology. He'll be humiliated. He is being the fool you made of yourself. Benchley, said Billy, clutching Benchley's leg. Benchley, 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 Benchley. Yes, William, what is it? What do you want to say? Billy looked unsteadily up into Benchley's face and licked his chops. Then he said, I'm peeing, and flopped back down in hysterical laughter. Bloody hell, said Benchley. The carpet! Let's go into the other room, I said quickly, realising that Billy's wine-bloated body held some fifty-four imperial gallons of table red, rapidly transforming into wastewater. Stocky, keep your eye on him. Make sure he doesn't hurt himself until he's sober. Why did you contact me and not Cambridge? I said, pouring Benchley a hot mug of East India tea. This is a science matter, not a magic one. Even if it were a magic one, Cambridge has those skilled in the arts. I only have Billy's skills to depend on. Looking back, I'm not entirely sure that I didn't, said Benchley. I may have dropped in a call to the Queen while I was about it. However, the Cambridge faculty are not here. You are. This is not my field, Bench. You need engineers. I'm a detective. Do you believe that we have no tools for finding out what it is? He sipped his tea. What it wants? Well, possibly, but surely there are authorities to handle this. We need to contact the appropriate agency. We need, said Benchley, to contact the machine itself. 
And what makes you so sure someone's piloting it? That it isn't a mindless automaton? Well, for one thing, it destroyed my guest house. Yes, and? And that's the only thing it destroyed. It stepped right over the village square, but gave all the buildings a wide berth. It looked like it's even moderated its damage to the fields and it's sticking to the forests. He sipped again. I believe it might be lost. I sighed. Truth to tell, I had the haunting feeling that I could be of use after all. Billy, sober, used some cracking translation spells, and we could certainly immobilize it if the cause came to be. Boss! Billy stood in the doorframe. His body was streaming wet, and wine was no longer the liquid of choice for the occasion. He gazed stupidly at me through a forest of pendulous hair, and when he hung out his tongue, it was black. If you plan on expectorating, Billy, I beg you use the barrel, I said. The moderate tone of my voice made him clap his paws through his ears and whimper slightly. Billy, said Benchley, I want to thank you for shouldering my burden. Your partner has spent most of this hour talking sense into me, and I feel we're on the verge of hatching a plan. I had a dream, whispered Billy. I was drowning in the water closet. I stood up, lifted Billy's chin, and peered into his bloodshot eyes. I could see the blood vessels slowly healing even now, and each time he blinked his gaze was clearer. I peered over his shoulder and winced. Stocky stood morosely on the fainting couch, surrounded by a yellowish sea that spread from wall to wall and reflected the chandelier. Benchley, I believe you'd better instruct Stocky on the location of your mop. I will take Billy out to the wellhouse and get him properly bathed. When we're ready, we shall visit this landing site and see what we can glean. Fair? I poured a thirtieth bucket of cold water over Billy's head, and he shook down and groaned with pleasure. I sent the bucket back down for another one, though, to be fair, Billy was quite clean at this point. His body shone in the afternoon sun, and his hangover was long since past. I saw Stocky and Benchley approaching from the house as I pitched another bucket over my business partner and watched him shake it off. "'What's the damage?' I called out. "'Well, we've rolled up the carpet. It was pretty much ruined. The furniture should survive, and Stocky mopped out the floors.' "'I'm sorry,' said Billy, tying back his mane. "'Oh, it's my fault,' said Benchley. "'It was my intoxication that flooded the room. "'Are we ready?' "'We travelled into the forests as a team, with Billy taking point. "'He followed the hunting trails for a while, "'and then veered off towards the river. "'Every once in a while he'd bend down to sniff at the base of a tree "'or pick up a handful of soil in his paws and press his muzzle to it. "'How now, werewolf?' said Benchley. "'Billy looked up. "'We had walked about a mile into the forest, "'and the air was close and warm.' The forests are nervous, he said. There has been a disturbance. We could have told you that, said Benchley. Billy tasted the air. His tail twitched very slightly. The beasts feel it, wizard. It's reflected in their trails. You can hear it in the bird song. Even the trees rustle differently than they usually do. The scars you can see where the monster left his footprints will take time to heal. The scars you can't see will take even longer. The forest doesn't smell safe. Stocky, how about you? Do you feel anything? Stocky shook his head. No, master. This thing knows not the ways of magic. We reached the landing site. What precisely are we looking for? said Benchley, as we approached the crater. The trees here were stripped bare, shattered, scattered like cordwood, even buried. The ground was like a ploughed field, fertile and brown, but lifeless as of yet. 
At the heart of this flatscape was a crater some eighth of a mile across, into which water had flowed freely since the night before, turning it into a sparkling blue pond raised around the outer edges, with a trickle of a stream rushing out the other side and away down the hill. "'Do you still carry a lodestone with you?' I said. "'Certainly,' Benchley replied. "'I carry one on my wand. "'Let me see your wand.' He handed it over to me, wordlessly, and I stuck it into the soft ground. It was, however, clean when I withdrew it. I examined it with care, but no particles clung to it. The machine left this crater when it landed. That doesn't sound like a craft under any form of control or with any sort of strategy. Perhaps it's like an automobile with no driver. What's the magnet for? To determine whether some element of the craft broke off when it landed. Perhaps if we can determine its composition, we can establish its weakness. This soil may house components or architecture separated from the main structure. I climbed the rim of the crater and looked out over the waters. Curious, I commented. What's that? said Benchley, joining me on the rim with stocking. Well, notice the ripples in the water as if a breeze were stirring them up. Nothing unusual about that, except there is no breeze. The water rippled towards us, but I feel no wind. The air is still. In fact, what little breeze we feel is coming from another direction. Billy knelt at the end of the pond and put his muzzle near the water. It smells different, he said. There's something in the smell, something in the water. He dipped his paw and brought it to his muzzle. He tasted it. It's pure and clean. There are no poisons, no hazards, no threats, just something like it's waiting. I handed Benchley back his wand, removed my shoes and waded into the crater, clothes and all. This water is very warm, I commented. It's much like a bath. That might be an artifact from the crash landing, said Benchley. Anything moving at that speed would build up a great deal of heat. I imagine that the ground was quite hot here last night. And solid, I noted. The ground all around us churned as if a tornado passed over it, but the bowl of the crater is like concrete. At what angle did the craft strike the ground? Ah, now that I have measured, said Benchley. He took a rumpled piece of paper from his pocket and squinted at it. He never did admit that he was rather far-sighted. Then he indicated a direction into the sky. I visualized the line leading from his hand to the heart of the crater and waded deeper into the crater. It grew quite deep very quickly, and I soon found myself swimming. Here, I called. The deepest part of the crater is here. The water is terribly warm. Hold on, said Benchley. I want to try something. He drew his wand, but as soon as he held it over the water, the water reached for it. Those are the words I have to describe what I witnessed, which was a talon of water reaching from the surface towards the wand as if to grab it. He drew his wand away and the water subsided, but it still seemed interested somehow, drawn towards the wand. I swam back to the banking and crawled onto the crater lip. Give me your wand, I said, and Benchley handed it to me as if frightened of it. The water that streamed from my clothes abruptly defied gravity and streamed towards the tip of the wand. Once surrounding the lodestone, the water had nowhere else to go and simply formed a very large, very heavy sphere at the end of the wand. I needed two hands to hold it up. Magnetic water? said Benchley. My clothes were completely dry now, but judging from the weight of the wand, they wouldn't stay that way. Billy wrapped his magnificent paw around my fists, helping me hold it up, and even Stocky pitched in though now the water was only a foot above the surface of the pond, and the pond reached for it again. Stocky seized me around the waist, and we combined our weight, but I already knew we were fighting a losing battle. The living water poured up onto the wand, yanking all of us down into the water. 
I felt it drag me across the bottom of the pond, and Billy's claws raked at my suit as he tried to hang on. Still, underwater, all the pressures were equal, and I found that I could let go. I released the wand and broke the surface. Are you all right? called Benchley as we paddled to land once again. Yes, but I seem to have lost your wand. I held up my empty hand. Oh, bagger the wand, he opined. I've got a dozen. We heard a faint boom of the metal monster's footsteps again. It had been a while since I'd heard one, or at least I'd grown so used to them I'd learned to ignore them. Billy, however, lifted his streaming head and sniffed the air. What is it, Bill? Before he could answer, we heard another boom closer than the first. Is it just me? said Benchley. Or are those footsteps a lot closer together? That one was a lot louder, too, said Billy, standing up suddenly. The next one followed right on the heels of his statement and was thunderous. It's coming this way, whispered Benchley. No sooner had the colour drained from his face than we saw it, towering above the surviving trees, felt the rush of wind accompanying its approach. Billy shouted over its roar, What the hell have you guys been doing? It's the water, I called, raising my voice above the roar of the monster. It's summoning the tower somehow. The trees nearest to us exploded in a hail of splinters, and the foot of the creature created a blast of air that knocked us all off our feet and stocky into the crater. Soaked with mud, Billy scrambled toward us, Get down, he shouted. Get down! The monster stepped on him. The rush of air sent another wave of mud pouring over us, and when I lifted my head, the foot of the beast was no more than ten yards away. It was as large as a small house, at least twelve feet tall, a sloping triangle with a vast rubber shoe on it. It occurred to me that the shoe must serve the same purpose as the tire on my automobile, a soft surface to make the ride easier. This shoe had landed on Billy, crushing him flat and sending a fan of blood spraying for ten feet in every direction. I looked up, and up, and up at the monster, which did not look down at me or regard me any more than I might have regarded an ant on the streets of London. I heard the echoing boom and felt the rush of wind of its other foot, landing several yards away and felt the thud of its third foot trip my heartbeat even further. So balanced, it started to lift the foot that had flattened my partner. No sooner did it raise the shoe from the indentation than I heard a string of swear words as my immortal associate relieved the outrage he felt at having nearly every bone in his body shattered. He stuck to the shoe of the thing like a beetle, peeling off only when he had reached an altitude of some twenty feet, and plummeted down into the mud again as the foot roared overhead, drowning out his obscenities. The impact of the foot landing on the other side of the crater again knocked me off my feet and sloshed the swirling whirlpool over me, and for a moment I could not surface. Then the monster stepped on me. Its other leg, lifting almost as soon as its forward leg landed, roared down and clapped over me. I was flat on my back, sinking slowly into the mud with perhaps three inches between the surface and the metal sheet pressing into my face. I was definitely sinking deeper as well, and though water could not pour in over the beast's rubber shoe, it could definitely seep up under it, and I felt the mud oozing up to my face. I don't mind confessing that it was quite a terrifying experience, lying flat on my back in a tiny air pocket, so terrifying that I don't even mind confessing that I made considerable water in my trousers. It was to my fortune that I was already so befouled with mud that no one would notice, but, of course, for Billy, whose muscle was better attuned to such changes in the atmosphere. I was not eager to die. I did not embrace it, yet I felt powerless as to preventing it. It was not the first time I'd been in such a position, and I would later find myself in far more dire straits, yet as keen as I was for survival, I was also curious as to how my companions were faring. Billy was crushed, and somewhere under this vast plain lay Benchley and Stocky, both sinking slowly into the mud under the million-ton weight of the monster. 
and then I heard a roar of machinery, and suddenly above me was only blue sky and frightened birds, as the foot swept away like a lid on a dish. It moved so fast that I was caught up in its vacuum, peeled out of the mud and flung down some twelve to fifteen feet away, which was something of an exhilarating experience. I lifted my head from the slime in time to notice the vast monster was straddling its own landing site. I saw Billy helping Stocky to stand, and Benchley struggling to free himself from the ground, and felt some light relief. Billy crawled over to me, and checked to ensure that I wasn't in some sort of shock or fit, and I assured him that I was made of quite stern stuff and suffered not a bruise from having been stepped on by a walking mountain. We went to collect Benchley and possibly avoid his eventual fossilization, but he did not extricate easily, and it took some leverage and a long stick to pry him free. At least it stopped walking, I said, gazing up at it. The whirlpool still swirled under the body of the machine, and all the water in the vicinity was drawing towards it as fast as it slopped out again. The monster reached its single long tentacle into the vortex and pulled something free. I only caught a glimpse of it as it rose. It was Benchley's magic wand. A sea of water waved after it, and I suddenly found myself in what I can only describe as a reverse rainstorm. Water and mud flew up from the ground and pelted me, and Stocky and Benchley and the monster, as the lodestone drew the pond up from its crater. The wind drew up into a hurricane. "'How do we get its attention?' shouted Benchley. "'The wand seems to have its interest,' I called back. "'Maybe if we can use it to cast a spell.' "'How do we get it back?' Billy nodded. "'Leave it to me,' he shouted. He scrambled across the mud to the thing's foot and leapt onto its shoe. From there he clawed his way to its top, and then to the hinge that formed its ankle. I kept a weather eye on the monster as I watched Billy scrambling up its leg. The next time it swung around to shake the water off the lodestone, Billy leaped out and grabbed it by the tentacle. He slid down it upside down, reaching for the wand. The thing played crack the whip again, and Billy's leg swung free. I heard a sound not unlike the chime of the bells at St. Clemens, as his back broke against the leg of the beast, but he did not let go. Finally, he reached his paw down and wrapped it around the wand's head. A huge rock, ripped from the ground by the force of the beast's reverse gravity, smashed the side of his head into a bloody mess, and he started playing Crack the Whip again. Finally, Billy managed an incantation. I have no idea what one he used. This absolutely didn't matter, the point being to reveal his presence at the end of the wand. The effect, however, was a delight. The reverse whirlwind ceased. It hailed mud for a few minutes, and a large rock whistled out of the sky and hit the surface of the now swampy crater with a splash that sent a wave over all of us. From up on the thing's arm, Billy spat mud and a tooth, his face and back already healed. Then he looked around suddenly, terror across his face. What's this? he cried. What's going on? What's... He disappeared. To be continued. Now, was that enough to make up for the silent treatment for the last few months? We at BDB sort of believe that it is. As always, we're available for questions, comments, or anonymous donations of large sums of money at baddogbooks at gmail.com. We've been working hard to make stuff happen, and it brings us no end of joy to finally be able to reveal it. So, let's recap. Fang goes on sale through Furnations for a Planet store and at Furry Weekend Atlanta. The first Fang Presents novel is coming out with a gorgeous painting by Grimal on the cover. Fang Volume 5 will be accepting new submissions with the theme Games from February 14th to April 14th. Tune in next month for more developments and the conclusion of The Walking Mountain by Ben Goodrich. 
with kind regards from Alex Vance, head pod scrubber of BDB, and Ben Goodridge, managing editor of Fang, this is Bad Dog Books. Now go write a story or buy our goddamn books. Get out of here.